Good morning. My name is Bruce. I want to say good morning uh, to all of you here and all who are watching at home as well. Thank you, Abby and team, uh, for leading us. He's never going to let us down because we're such wonderful people, right? We're in 1 Peter, and that's where you can open up in your Bible. 1 Peter calls us chosen strangers or elect exiles. Why did he choose us? Because of his goodness, not ours. Because of his mercy and his grace, not ours. And boy, that is good reason to give him worship. I'm glad you're doing that today. Uh, today we're going to talk about family resemblance. Who do you look like? You ever get asked that question? You look more like your mom or your dad. I don't look like either of them. We've had a, uh, I look like my maternal grandfather, is what I'm told. I never knew him. Uh, we've had a couple fun experiences at our house with this. The picture on the left is me as a ninth grader. <clears throat> when our son, Trent, was a ninth grader, he's sitting at the computer working on something, and Christy was cleaning out a drawer, found that picture and came in and set it in front of him. And his words were, oh, no. <laughs> Does that mean I'm going to look like Dad? <laughs> Um, the picture on the right is about 7th or 8th grade. <clears throat> Our grandson Jackson was here this summer in August, and he was uh, working at something at the table, and she found a picture of me in 7th grade. He's a 6th grader. She said, boy, I see a resemblance. Jack, what do you think? He goes, I think I need to start saving for plastic surgery. <laughs> he said it that quick, and we're just cracking up laughing. Um, we get to talk about family resemblance today. When we are adopted into God's family, when by faith we choose to follow and he adopts us into his family, we start to resemble our heavenly father. And today we get to talk about what is it that makes it possible for us to look a little more like him tomorrow than today, a little more today than yesterday, that process of changing little by little by little. And specifically, 1 Peter's about when the pressure's on, when we feel like we're going down, we, we just sang those words, feel like things are a struggle and pressure, do we more resemble our Father when things are tough, when the heat is on, or do we look less like him? When we're sinned against, do we look more like him or look less like him? When things don't go our way or the way we had hoped, do we resemble him more or less? So we're going to talk about what it looks like to be holy and how that happens. Holy when the heat is on. It's the idea. We're in chapter 1 of 1 Peter. If you have trouble finding it, start at the back of your New Testament, back of your Bible, and go forward. Seven letters. 1 Peter is there. We started it two weeks ago. This letter is from Peter to first-generation Christians who are across what we know today as Turkey was Asia Minor then, and uh, they're in the north part of that country. Most of them were formerly uh, pagans, Gentiles. They were idol worshipers, uh, worshiping God's small g until they came to hear the gospel and put their faith in Jesus Christ. A few, a minority, were Jews and are now following Jesus. And these Jews and Gentiles are mixed in the early church, and the heat is on. 
because the emperor is now Nero. This is 30 years after the resurrection of Jesus. 30 years later, the new emperor is Nero. Started okay, gets worse and worse, and persecution begins. So the pressure is on. Two weeks ago, Tiberius took us into the, the start in verse one. We know the letter is written to chosen strangers. So the, the title of our series is Chosen because it's the target audience of this letter. Followers of Jesus in tough times. He talked about how Jesus has set us free from the penalty of sin by our salvation. He's setting us free from the power of sin as we change more and more to become more like our Father. Last week, Kip emphasized we're given a new birth into a living hope. When the hard times come, not if, when the hard times come, life in this world, we know where our hope is rooted. And he said a couple of things that I loved. Uh, he said, our, it's not about how hard the journey, but it's who you do it with and who's at the end of the journey. Not about how hard, it's who's with you on the journey and who's at the end. And he said, hope comes not from expecting ease, but from practicing praise. Practicing praise. So they go through hard times. There's an opportunity for us here to listen. Now, it's football season, and I like that. Um, I enjoy being around the game and watching the game. Uh, football, there's three things. There's a lot of preparation that goes into a game. The, the hours and hours spent preparing and then you have to play defense and you have to play offense. And that's what we're going to organize. We're in the middle of chapter 1, verse 13. It talks about preparation, then how to play defense, how to play offense in life and being holy when the heat is on. It starts out with the word therefore. You've heard people say, okay, what's that supposed to be built on? Well, it's everything that's gone on in the first part of the chapter. Because we have... Verse 3, birth into a living hope. Verse 4, an inheritance that doesn't fade. Verse 7, a faith that's being refined. Verse 8, joy in our souls. Verse 9, we're awaiting the salvation of our souls. That's the goal of our lives. Because we have all that, now what are we supposed to do? And that's the shift at verse 13. Therefore, Prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. The preparation is, uh, there's a command in verse 13. Set your hope fully. Set your hope fully. It's talking about focus on the goal. When we're preparing for a game and we're in practice, we say to the running backs, Put your foot in the ground and go vertical. That means toward the goal. You don't look at all the linemen and all the people crunching at each other in front of you. You, you look through the hole at the goal. That's what he's saying here. When I was a Boy Scout and young, uh, some of you have heard Pastor Randy Smith said, following Jesus used to be a stroll in the park. Now it's a hike, and it's becoming a climb. Well, as a young Boy Scout, uh, did a bunch of hikes, and uh, our family loves to go on hikes, uh, our kids, and so we go along, and they just go trucking up 
a high one. From the time I was a Boy Scout, I looked for, when it was a steep climb, I looked for the blue. A and I'd look up and look for the, where the blue sky met the hill because I knew that's where I needed to get. And when I got there, I was at the top of it and could catch my breath. That's the idea spiritually. What's our goal? The goal is when Jesus is revealed. His grace is revealed. When he returns, that's the goal. Fix your hope there. Not on the stuff around you, the distractions, the other things that seem temporarily satisfying. Fix your hope there. How do you do that? Two verbs in the verse. We're going to spend a lot of time on the first one, a little bit on the, the second one, and then go to defense and offense. Prepare your minds for action. That's the first verb. Preparing your minds for action. It's a funny set of words in Greek. Having girded up the loins of your mind. What is that? Okay, it's a phrase. Uh, the picture, the word picture is um, people in that day wearing a long robe or cloak. And when you get ready for action, what do you do with it? You grab it, you tuck it into your waist, you have now girded up, and, and you're ready to go. And that's the picture, but he's saying, prepare your minds for action. So all the things that would weigh down or tug on your mind, you, you grab what's there, tuck it in, and get ready to go. Um, I've been learning a lot and thinking a lot about worldview. What is a worldview? So I think us preparing our minds for action is being worldview alert. Worldview alert. What's a worldview? Well, on the screen, a couple of the different definitions. A worldview is a pattern of ideas, beliefs, convictions, habits. They help us make sense of God, the world, ourselves, and how we relate to God in the world. Somebody else said worldview is any ideology, philosophy, theology, movement or religion that gives an overall, it's, it's how you view the world, how you understand the world, your, our place in it and God's place in it and how we respond to him, how we relate to him and to the world. That's a worldview. He's saying prepare your minds for action. And I think in our day, it's do we understand the ideology, the philosophy, the theology that's there all around us, that's there eight hours a day in school, um, that is in every song you listen to, every movie you watch, every television show, every news story you read or watch, there is a worldview underneath it that it's built upon. Are we worldview alert? Or our minds just relaxed, not ready for action. And we're just listening, watching, reading, hearing. And then go, wait a minute. How do we relate to God in the middle of all of this? We did a great class this summer. Uh, the uh, Choose Your Own Adventure. I got to be part of this with Cassie, who leads our E&L ministry. And we had a few elementary school kids in it. And we had a bunch of middle schoolers go through it. It, uh, in worldview, looks at what is a biblical worldview compared to a bunch of other world religions and secularism or humanism. 
What does it say about origins? Where did we come from? What's it say about God? Is there one? What's it say about man? Who is he? Uh, what's it say about sin? What's wrong in the world? Salvation, death, what happens when we die? And, and taught kids to go through how are each of those things addressed by different worldviews? It was awesome. You know how many kids we had? Guess how many we needed? Here's what scared me. Uh, Barna Research Group, uh, Mindy, our WL Kids director, sent this out to a bunch of us. Barna Research Group did work looking at worldview and for the first time did a bunch of research with children. They were a little concerned, how do we get to where, uh, they say a, a biblical worldview, 6% of Americans live by a biblical worldview. 50% would call themselves Christians or evangelicals. That number's going down. 56, what's, what? the discrepancy there. So they started asking questions. How is a worldview formed and when? Between 18 months old and 13 years old. And here's the kicker. After age 13, that worldview almost never changes. It takes a major life crisis to change the worldview. So, when is the time that a biblical worldview is formed? When did you get yours? And from whom? And how? Worldview alert. Uh, so, every newspaper article, I've got a few examples. Our ability to be able to uh, be alert, have our heads in the game, to understand what's going on and what worldview is there. Here's a headline from the New York Times. God has no place on the Supreme Court. You read the first couple of sentences, and the uh, author is saying, we've been able to talk about all kinds of things in our culture. For some reason, we can't talk about religion and how it needs to be out of the courts and out of the public sphere. We can't talk about that without being called anti-religious. <laughs> yeah, that would be response uh, built on a biblical worldview. Well, duh. <laughs> There's a worldview in that article. Uh, one of my favorites was in the Chronicle of Higher Education, the headline, a dishonest study on dishonesty puts a prominent researcher on the hot seat. <laughs> a really well-known professor, he's done TED Talks. Um, he did a study on dishonesty and a bunch of peers reviewed it and said his research methods were dishonest. There's a worldview under that article. Uh, another one, a headline in Wall Street Journal. A generation of American men give up on college. I just feel lost. That's the headline. Normally, in the lead paragraph of an article, you can pick out what's there in terms of the worldview uh, the article is built on. I think it's important for us when we're alert, our heads are in the game, we've prepared our minds for action, we can then be worldview suspicious. What I mean by that is I now read articles or hear stories, and I'm suspicious about solution. 
I ask myself the question, okay, they're, they're making an argument, they're making a point, do they have a solution to suggest? And if they don't, uh, I know it's coming from a worldview that's something I need to be suspicious about. Uh, it also makes me, when my mind and my head is in the game, makes me worldview compassionate. Because when I read an article, uh, I could give you a, a bunch more of them. When I read an article or I, I listen to an, an argument, uh, it turns me back to being more compassionate. It's easy for a follower of Jesus to say, it's us versus them. It was easy in the first century to say, us versus them. Easy in the 21st century, us versus them, but then you lose the sense of mission. Why are we even here? To be light, salt people, born new birth into a living hope. And so, uh, 1 Corinthians 5, Paul talks to them and says, I told you to avoid the sexually immoral per person. He said, I wasn't talking about people in the world. To stay away from immorality altogether, you'd have to leave the world. No, I'm talking about within the church. And, and basically he's saying, no, you expect those without God, without hope, without faith, you expect a certain hollow worldview, angry worldview. And so it, it makes me, instead of, uh, oh, the problem is them, makes me much more compassionate. What do I expect from them? What should I expect from them? Ah, they need hope. They need Jesus. They need an answer to what is really broken inside us. Worldview compassionate. How do we develop a biblical worldview? How do we prepare our minds for action? What God's word tells us is useful for training, correction, instruction. So we need God's word. I'm glad some of you are doing the reading guide that goes with this series. We've got to be in the word. And, and I've got to tell you, one or two sermons a month aren't going to do it. That's the average now for folks that are followers of Jesus, one or two sermons a month. I don't know how often, I don't know how you measure how often does the Bible get cracked open during the week. One or two sermons a month is not going to win the fight, the struggle. When the heat is on, and I don't say that because, um, uh, yeah, I've got a vested interest as a pastor. Yep, I'd like to have lots of people back, and I know COVID surge has kind of changed the the game again, whether you're watching at home or you're here. Uh, the reason I said one or two isn't good enough is, is one of the shepherds, one of the pastors, there's too many distractions out there, and I'm afraid about what the, the distractions do, the other worldviews do to capture the soul. Barna Research Group also said this. If we are not intentionally focused on helping them, meaning our students, our young adults, and our children, if we aren't intentionally focused on helping them develop biblical worldview, the world is very happy to shift their minds and hearts and lives toward other kinds of worldviews, and it's going to be very hard to dislodge those. And he goes on to say, in the millennial generation, the percentage of biblical worldview is one. So, we've got to be in the Word. 
And we've got to be answering those questions about man, sin, salvation, death from the Word. What do I do? Got up on the screen some podcasts. Um, it's re- been really good for me to just listen to some podcasts. These are two of my favorites. I do the briefing uh, almost every day. Uh, that's a guy down in Louisville. Uh, their tagline is, a daily analysis of news and events from a Christian worldview. So his staff reads the New York Times, Washington Post, LA Times, uh, Wall Street Journal. I get all the nuggets by listening for 20 minutes. Really good. Uh, I love Think Biblically. Our students know Sean McDowell. He's a professor out at Biola. He's spoken at our Momentum almost every summer. He and another professor out there do this. They interview all kinds of people, writers, um, people that are dealing with cultural issues. They interview them, and it's all, how do we think biblically? Those are really helpful. I also like, there's two others. Uh, I was just told this week about the, the Things Above podcast. Uh, most of them are 12 or 14 minutes. Really good. How to focus our minds on things above, not on things beneath. Uh, and then the other one, Breakpoint, done by the Colson Center for Worldview, is just a few minutes every morning. It's on the radio. It's also available as podcast. That's part of what I do to get my head in the game and to be able to think worldview. We're going to do some things this year on parents with students and children on worldview. So I'd urge you to to be in on that. Help prepare your mind for action. Okay, there's a second verb. Be self-controlled. How do we fix our hope? Set our hope on when Jesus comes back. We prepare our mind for action and then we're to be self-controlled controlled. The word here is uh, sober-minded. It just means clear-minded. Instead of clouded and foggy but, and tangled up in all the other distractions, clear-minded. Clear-minded. The idea is I'm going to be mentally self-disciplined. Uh, one person said it's pulling in all the loose ends of my life to be able to be clear-minded. Ever feel frayed? hundred different things to give your attention and energy to. It's saying, whoops, wait a minute, what, what's the main thing? Be clear-minded, set your hope fully on the hope when Jesus is revealed. Okay, so that's all preparation for the contest. Then what is the contest? How do we play defense? How do we play offense? And it's in the next couple of verses. Verse 14 is defense. As obedient children, that's our new identity. We're going to live out of our new identity. As obedient children, don't conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Don't conform. That word shows up twice in the New Testament. Romans 12.2. Don't conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Oh, okay, so I'm not supposed to be like everything else in the world. This is saying, uh, don't conform to what you used to be. It's not just, don't be like them, be, be different, be transformed, Romans 12, 2. Here, it's uh, extract yourself. You, you need to distance from what you used to be, specifically the evil desires that controlled your life. That's an interesting word. That word is uh, lusts, strong desires. It's the word that's at the core of 
idols, anybody, anything who's more important in my heart and in my life than God is. He's saying, you used to have a bunch of other idols you worshipped, things that, that captured your soul, your heart. Now, don't conform to that anymore. Be different than what you used to be. That's the defense. Don't conform. I'm not going to let, uh, the way Romans 12.2 is translated, don't let the word squeeze you into its mold. There's a pressure there. Resist the pressure. That's defense. Offense is the next verse, verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy for I am holy. Oh, that word scares us. Be holy. Because we know we don't measure up. Holy like God is holy. Except for Jesus, that's pretty hopeless. Be holy in all you do. What's the word mean? Well, it's touching on purity, moral integrity. God's pure, we're not. It's used uh, more than 200 times in the New Testament. Sometimes applies the red section to calling followers of Jesus saints. That's the word, holy ones. Most of the time, it's addressing uh, God or calling us to holiness. Good translation for it is other, different, uncommon, not like everything else that, and, and everyone else different. So how are they to be different? Well, he says, in all you do. We used to talk about Christians are different from everything else, everyone else around them. Used to be uh, no movies, no jeans, no long hair, no playing cards, no drinking, no smoking. That's how you can tell a Christian. I don't know if that was ever very effective or useful as uh, I studied this week, I thought, different, uncommon. How are we uncommon today? Uh, attitudes towards shots and masks. How's a follower of Jesus today uh, uncommon, different, a person of hope, other than everything that's going on right now? How is a follower of Jesus uncommon, in attitude toward leaders or policies. And frankly, it doesn't matter whether you disliked Trump and company or you currently dislike Biden and company. Nero, as he calls them first century, be holy in all you do. I, I think today, uncommon, different in terms of our attitudes. How about, how are we different, uncommon in our thoughts about uh, the, the persistent poverty in our community, much less nation. Uh, ethnic tensions, awkwardness in our community, much less nation. Uh, are we different? Uncommon? Other? Uncommon hope, uncommon service uncommon love. The early church was at its best when things were the worst. 
And it made me think this week about what things were like in the early months of the pandemic. Uh, there were things about our church family we got talking about in speaking team that were absolutely our best when things, uh, remember March a year and a half ago and we weren't allowed to meet for a few months and then we met online and we couldn't even be with each other and the church was at its best. People were looking out for each other. There were phone calls, there were emails. Life groups met at a distance uh, from each other. Relationships were kept going. Uh, people delivered meals, made meals, thanked our educators, thanked our healthcare workers, sewed thousands of masks. Church was at its best when we couldn't even meet together. Uncommon hope, uncommon love, uncommon service. He quotes Leviticus. You probably haven't read there lately. Be holy for I am holy. If you were in the reading guide this week, you read a few passages in Leviticus, and he's quoting one of them here. And uh, God is saying in Leviticus, he's, he's setting up uh, the law and the, how they are going to be different from all the surrounding people, how God is different from all the other small g gods. Holy versus profane or common. And the point is God's saying in Leviticus, I'm different from all the other gods. You belong to me, so you're different from all the other people worshiping the other gods. That's Leviticus in a nutshell, and that's why he says, uh, folks, first century, folks, 21st century, how are you going to be holy when the heat is on? You be other, you be different like God is different. You belong to him. There's family resemblance. We've been adopted into his family. We look like him when things aren't going well, when things are hard. I listened last week. Uh, it was the 20th anniversary, obviously, last weekend. It struck me, our kids don't, uh, our students, some of our collegians don't have, where were you on 9-11? It's been 20 years. And we re-watched, we listened and watched some of the first-person stories we're sitting there watching the TV crying. What a time. Um, told you I listened to Breakpoint. Colson Center for Worldview. They went back and picked out radio broadcasts 20 years ago by Chuck Colson. He's with the Lord now. And it was striking to hear him the day after uh, on 9-12 and 9-13 and then into the next week. And he over and over and over again said Christians need to be different right now. And Christians need to lead the way right now. Uh, in things like donating blood, in things like listening to somebody who's really angry, uh, in listening to somebody who's confused and scared and the ways the world changed 20 years ago on that day, over and over and over, he said, be different, be uncommon. People were beating up Arab Americans in several cities across the U.S. He said, no, we take the stand against that. Uh, some people were saying, nuke them. We're going to get even. He said, that isn't how a Christian thinks about conflict or even when war is necessary. We are going to be uncommon and different. Because our Father is. And then he, next paragraph gives the motivation. 
How? Why? How's this going to happen? Why do we work at uh, fixing our hope fully, focusing, preparing our mind for action, being clear-minded, and then playing defense and playing offense? Why? Since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent fear. We have motivation. We have scary motivation, negative motivation. The Father is also the judge, and he's coming. The old uh, kid thing of when your father comes, he's going to deal with you. We know that. We know that each man has to give an account for what he's done in life, whether good or bad. We know that, and so we go, yep, I don't want to conform to what I used to be. Yep, I want to be uncommon, different, set apart to God. And we show that by living as strangers. Resident foreigners is the word there in verse 17. I I live here, but I really belong to, to another kingdom. And that's the tension that we, we live every day when we follow Jesus. But there's positive motivation. Four, verse 18, you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. In fact, uh, as we talked about, good to pick a memory verse uh, out of each of our passages or each week. This is it, so we're going to read it together. Okay? Uh, can we have the, the verse up there? There we go. Okay, let's read it together out loud. For you know that it was not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. What's the positive motivation to fix our hope, to get our heads in the game, to to be clear-minded, to not be what we used to be, to instead be uncommon and different? What's the positive motivation? I've been paid for. I've been set free. I've been redeemed. It's a slavery word. The church back then was slaves, former slaves who are now freed. They'd purchased their freedom and free men and women. All mixed together in the church. And he's reminding them, he's using a slavery word to say, yeah, you used to be in bondage to sin. You used to be stuck in your sin, but you used to be stuck in the empty way of life handed down from your forefathers. What was that? For the Jews, for a believer who had been a Jew, it was the over and over and over and over and over again sacrifice, day after day after day after day after day, never having a clear sense of, oh, we're set free. Until the once for all perfect spotless lamb. Who's that? Jesus. Until Jesus dies. That set the Jews free from that feudal over and over and over again. What about the Gentiles? What was the feudal or empty way of life handed down to them? It's pointing back at verse 14. 
All those idols, those, those strong desires, the evil desires, all those idols you used to worship that you thought were going to satisfy your soul and they never did, you just lived scared of them, you're set free from that. You've been redeemed. The price has been paid to take you from slavery to freedom. That's the motivation. That's what allows us to say, ah, I want to be uncommon. I want to be different. And that's the good news of the gospel. Jesus paid the price to set me free, to set you free from all of that. We could never do enough positive, good things to to take care of our own sin. He paid for it to set us free, and now that motivates us. Because I've been bought with a price, now I'm going to fix my hope fully. I'm going to get my head in the game. I'm going to be clear-minded. I'm not going to be what I used to be. I'm going to be uncommon, different. That's the motivation. And he ends the paragraph with two beautiful verses, uh, almost poetic, about who Jesus is. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. So your faith and your hope are in God, in him. You know that the target of your faith and the source of your hope. So for us, we know as chosen ones, we live different, uncommon holy lives. When the heat is on, chosen ones are different, other, and uncommon. Let's ask God to help us with that. Father, we need you because we know we can't produce that holiness, that difference, the the being other. We can't muster it on our own. It's the work of your grace, your mercy, and the ongoing work of your Holy Spirit. This week, we're going to be in pressured situations. We're going to need this week to remember you have set us apart, you've called us, you've chosen us for a purpose. Give us compassion, alertness, and a focus to love and walk with you in the hardest moments. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.